You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Hargens. What's up, everybody? Thank you for putting this podcast in your ears because let's be honest, everyone has a podcast these days, right? And there are so many things competing for your attention. The fact that you decide to spend an hour, roughly a week with this podcast, with me, with the guest, it's very meaningful and I it is not lost on me. And plus, I... This show means a lot to me on a lot of different levels, but one of them is that like, even though it would be great if this show had millions of downloads, primarily just because I would be able to promote the bands that I enjoy, I am not looking for this thing to grow into a mainstream podcast. Like this is meant for the people who care about this sort of stuff. And that is why I love podcasting. But you know, anyways, I'm on a soapbox right now, but let me walk down. Let's talk about our guest. Pete Appleby. He plays in the bands Renee Hartfelt. He played in the band called Count Me Out. These are both awesome, awesome bands. If you have not listened to either of those bands, you need to do yourself a favor and for one, pick up the discography that came out on 6131 Records for Renee Hartfelt. Renee Hartfelt is just a extraordinary post-hardcore band, you know, a la Quicksand, all that sort of stuff. And then Count Me Out is probably one of the better bands in the early 2000s doing the whole, you know, traditional hardcore, but kind of with a more modern tip that there was a little bit more tinge and anger. I I just, I love both bands. I saw both of them, you know, repeatedly. Oh, actually, no, I only saw Renee Hartfelt once, but I saw Count Me Out a couple of times. And uh, Pete's just a really interesting person and I had to have him on the show. So I was able to make it happen. Because, uh, you know, like I said, Renee Hartfelt just released a discography on 6131. There's, you know, a reason to be kind of promoting this stuff. But Pete is, uh, yeah, a down-to-earth dude as a dentist. <laughs> and we, we talk about that and a bunch of other different things. But first of all, I want you to email the show. If you have any feedback, you got guest ideas, whatever the case may be, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I respond to as many as humanly possible of those emails, and uh, I just love connecting with people in a real way, and not just like this, you know, one-sided relationship, <laughs> because you know that's that's what a lot of us have right now, especially in this uh, world that we live in. And uh, I also I want to mention to you, this is a great podcast that I wholeheartedly endorse called the Punk Rock MBA Podcast with Finn McKenty. He has guested on this show a couple of times. I've actually gone on his show a couple of times, and I just think he is a uh, not only a great human being, but has a really interesting point of view in regards to taking all of this DIY principle stuff that we learn within the context of the you know punk and hardcore and metal scene or whatever, but applying it to you know the business aspects and growing brands and a lot of that you know marketing stuff that uh, you know many people, including like myself, are very passionate about. And he has a wide variety of guests, you know, from the dude who started Liquid Death Water, which is one of the most recent episodes that uh, I listened to. And then guys like Anthony Fantano, who is a YouTube music critic. But trust me in saying, if you have not listened to his podcast and you like this show, you absolutely need to go over there and uh, check out what he has going on. I will include a link super easy in the show notes for you to be able to click on and check it out. But uh, yeah. Shout out to Finn. Thank you for supporting this show. And in turn, I get to support your show. So it's a great, it's a a two-way street here. It's like a split seven inch, right? (laughs) Anyways, let's dive into the conversation with Pete Appleby 
from Renee Hartfelt and Count Me Out, and uh, let's learn about him, okay? Let's do this. I'll set it up by, you know, saying that, like I alluded over email to you, that I saw Renee Hartfelt when you guys came through on your solitary U.S. tour. Because um, it, it, right. you, you guys only did one U.S. tour, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I want to say the place that you played in Los Angeles was this place called Studio S, which was like, you know, a venue they maybe did like, I don't know, a year's worth of shows at. It was one of those transitory venues that like, okay, you know. yeah. And I want to say that you played with... Um, Gosh, I want to say maybe that this band called Backstabbers Incorporated. Um, I could be completely wrong, but, uh, you know, it was one of those shows where you guys, you know, clearly were playing with hardcore bands because that was obviously the world that you lived in. But um, no one knew who you were except like me and maybe three other people at the, you know, 20 person show or whatever. Um, (laughs) But it's not right, man. (laughs) Right. But it. It was interesting because I think that there were, you know, I, I compare you guys uh, to, you know, a lot. Do, were you familiar with that band, Big Collapse? Big Collapse. Uh, it, uh, no, not really. Okay. It do, it's dudes from Shift. It's basically like two or three of the guys from Shift that did this okay. band after in the early 2000s. And they were on this label called the Militia Group. Anyways, long story short, it was like, you know, this sort of like post hardcore renaissance. And, you know, clearly, you guys definitely fell into that. And I felt like even though there was a lot of people who were interested in that sound, it was too early again. Like, even though it's kind of the second cycle of it, you know? Yeah, uh, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. <laughs> whereas, like, I, I think if you guys came out, like, you know, whatever, five years ago, so, like, we'll say 2015, it you know, the audience may have been more receptive to that. Like, does it feel weird to kind of have that being like, well, you know, I, I guess we were too early, even though this music has existed for a long time like you know does that is that weird for you <laughs> you know it is and I mean, having had other people say that it, um it is a little weird because certainly when we were doing it it even coming as far back with count me out it always felt like we were a little bit late like oh maybe we were just late to this thing but maybe looking back and seeing how sort of the sound did develop within post-hardcore uh maybe we were a little a little bit early uh and that does sound weird to say <laughs> Right, <laughs> you know for sure. Yeah, and yeah, I, I agree. Think, and I, I think too because of the notion of you guys existing on the fact that um, you know this is maybe a bad comparison, but like I remember when um, you know guys from the Locust started Tristeza, which was like you know beautiful instrumental music, and people had an expectation of it's like oh a dude from the Locust you know doing uh, you know Tristeza like oh th- this is probably somewhat akin to the locust and like it could be further from the truth and so right. i feel like a lot of people had those expectations with renee where it was like oh yeah i know it's not going to be like you know traditional count me out hardcore but i'll still expect a certain thing from them yeah maybe it was kind of one standard deviation too far away from the sounds we we were coming out of and then as you said we were kind of playing hardcore shows and staying in that sort of comfort zone that we knew what little we knew to, to book a, a, a tour or uh, the, the connections we had to yeah, try to work with labels, et cetera. Uh, maybe a, a 
part of the reason the band sort of didn't it kind of floundered a little bit but uh you know it's funny looking back it's it was hard how how else would we know any any differently i think um because yeah that whole diy mindset of it um we were just kind of we didn't know how to even do a band any other way um and then yeah that sort of put us maybe playing shows where people like you said i mean there's three people there maybe had heard of us um and, and other people were sort of looking for a different sound at that show so it's kind of like ah you're gonna fall flat right yeah and it, but I, I think you hit on an interesting thread there and i think something that is really valuable to most people that are you know of a certain age that are still connected to this music scene is the fact that you you like you said you don't know another way so it's like well we're just going to do the same things we have been doing you know yeah we're going to try we're hopefully going to be a little bit smarter than we did the first time but we're essentially going to operate in the same diy world where we are comfortable um and not because you don't want to challenge yourself but just because like well that's what we know how to do yeah yeah and i mean there was also the element of like well i mean um and I don't want to make it sound like we were too purposeful because in any of these things, it was, it was like, we'll play whatever show we get offered. We'd love to do that. You know, we'll drive as a lot of bands do when they're, when you're first starting, we'll, you know, drive six hours to play that one gig, uh, just to do it. And, I, and we needed the experience, experience in, in playing as a, a kind of, a, a more, a more of a post hardcore sound and gelling as a band and all that needed to happen and i felt like we just had to play like you know we needed like to play 50 shows um so we were doing all that and for better or worse but um i i'm not sure why we couldn't uh that we had so much trouble with that at the beginning other bands in the at the time were i seemed make it make, just made it look easy they were like oh my god we're booked on this you know this set of dates with this band and it, it all seemed like wow that seems perfect and easy but we just didn't ever find ourselves in that situation never had that opportunity really presented to us um although i felt like we were working for it it's just like you said maybe we were just a bit early it's just the timing of them was off sure yeah and nobody we, knew us you know? <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah there's unknown, so there's a myriad of factors yeah <laughs> uh, uh kind of you know putting put a pin in that thought but you know focused on you as an individual um you know i know that you were you know born in chicago and then made your way out to richmond when you were like in your early teens right yeah yeah 13 yeah and so you, your family structure from what i understand like you know mom and dad in the house you had an older brother uh am i missing anybody no that's it that was it was the four of us that's right moved from chicago Got it. And so, do you have any memories of Chicago? Like, is it one of those things that you, you know, have fleeting memories of? Like, oh, I like Chicago because, you know, the winters were cool or whatever. Like, is there any connection there? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it was formative. I mean, certainly uh, early on, it was ice hockey because that was, you know, it's a big sport in Chicago. And we'd see the Blackhawks play. Um, and I loved it. And then uh, a little bit of basketball, of course, I saw Jordan play, which I was I always love to brag about to my son yep. now. You should. Um, yeah, that's great. Right. Uh, but um, so that was certainly the early passion. I mean, just the cold, long winters. Yeah. Skating at Robert uh, Lee Community Ice Rink in, Evan in Evanston. And I just go like skate. That was my total passion and sort of kind of a thing that I always found looking back now is it like I tend to kind of dive into something when I get into it. So it looking back, it was really hockey was probably that first thing. And then out of that, uh, with skateboarding. 
did and uh, like you said, hockey is you know kind of an institution within Chicago and you know, yeah. clearly the clearly the Midwest as well. Uh, was it something that your parents were just like, oh, like you should do this, or did you kind of bring it to them, being like, oh, hockey looks interesting? Yeah, actually, no, because my mom is from the South and my dad was out from Berkeley, California. Um, so no, they didn't really play hockey growing up, but were supportive of it. And I guess I was at a public school where some kids were playing. Um, and, uh, all of a sudden I just, you know, I fell in love with the idea of just skating on the ice. I thought that was so cool. And I think we saw like a Blackhawks game and I was like, I want to do it. Um, right. and then they, yeah, they brought me over the rink. We got the used gear and, you know, there's all sorts of like peewee youth programs cause you're in Chicago. So it, it made that pretty plug and play. Uh, and then I think my parents loved it cause yeah, they dropped me off at the rink Saturday morning and I, I would have hockey practice, stay for the public skate. Um, I was just a maniac about it. Sure. Um, sure. Right. <laughs> and I, I think it, there's something that's so it, fun about, I mean, I being from Southern California, I, you know, got into like ice skating when I was like, I don't know, you know, seventh and eighth grade, like that junior high, um, of like, you know, you're obviously looking for girls a lot of times and like sometimes there were girls there and you'd be like oh man i get like the couple skate but like i can look cool <laughs> with my hockey skates and like ice people and stuff like that but it, it you know when you come at it <laughs> the, in the fashion that you did where it was like you know here's a sport but then i also can do it sort of recreationally like it's able to kind of really um you know like you said be a formative experience for you absolutely and i mean I, we're getting deep here but like yeah my first girlfriend sarah mallet was a figure skater that really oh. our, 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 you know, middle school relationship blossomed at the hop, yeah, at the ice rink doing Absolutely. free skate. So yeah, it was cool. <laughs> it was definitely, it was, yeah. So I was just consumed with that. And then all of a sudden dad lost his job. Um, I'd been getting into skateboarding. I was also a pretty skinny kid. So, um, it was getting a check league and I was really struggling just getting hit off the puck. Um, so I, skateboarding was also becoming, I just, it was like what, probably 91, 92 now. Um, and sort of that new wave of skateboarding was coming through, it was kind of coming back. Um, and we'd gotten down with, I mean, I was like eight years old doing with like a Tony skate or a Tony Hawk deck kind of in the, the vert thing, but nowhere to skate vert. We just would skate out in the driveway. Right. Uh, but then that new kind of, you know, small wheel, big jeans thing came on and I, my brother and I just got swept up in that. Um, and that was right. 92, 93. And then we found out and we, that we were leaving, uh, Chicago to move to Virginia. And I'm guessing by the description of that, you felt you understood, but you probably felt kind of betrayed at the same time. It's like, oh, dude, we got to move like this stinks. Or were you excited about the new adventure? You know, I guess my parents were having a lot of trouble. So there was some pressure needing to be released. My my brother was three years older than me um, and he was bouncing between schools. I mean, always a smart kid. But there was there was some, you know, stresses on the family. So, yeah, on one level, I was like, I understood enough to be like, maybe this is a change is good, but yeah, I believe it. I was heartbroken. I was loving life in Chicago. It was just starting to open up. That's cool. Uh, uh, I guess, you know, babysitter growing up, who was a comic book artist and he'd, uh, take us an L downtown to like comic book shops and he skated a little bit and he was just a cool guy. So that was an element that allowed me to kind of at only 13 be experiencing some of that part of the city. And so, yeah, my, I was like, Oh, this is awesome. And then it was just over, you know? Sure. So, well, I was especially for sure. Oh yeah, I mean, getting pulled away from all of the things that you know and love, <laughs> and and your friends and all that, just being like, all right, well, you know, yes, it's exciting to maybe build a new identity and be like, 
oh, you know, Pete, like here's Pete, the new kid from Chicago. Like, wow, this is exciting. But yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. But again, uh, gosh, uh, still such a great looking back. I mean, it was just an awesome opportunity. And uh, I did, you know, I remember swearing up and down to my friends, like, I'm going to move back as soon as I leave, you know. And within, you know, a year or two of getting to Richmond, as I adjusted, I mean, this is Richmond in the early 90s, which is a different place politically than it is now. Um, and there was certainly some culture shock for me moving to, to Virginia. But that's where it really got hit, hit more straight on with the music, the music and the accessibility of music. Mm-hmm. Um, there was really a strong scene there. So sure. that we got, you know, we kind of went into uh, what Freeman High School. My brother went to Freeman High School and went to Tucko Middle and there was a little bit of skate scene, a little bit of that, but there was definitely a stronger punk kind of indie rock subculture, which did a little bit of skating. But I felt like we kind of came in with a skateboarding, latched on that crew, and that's how we sort of got into playing music. Um, and that was right in 93. Yeah. And, and it's funny, too, because you look at the, you know, I mean, Chicago, clearly a music town as well. I mean, the Fireside Bowl and everything else. And but it's it took you traveling to virginia to you know have that connective because i mean realistically well, you're bringing up a great point i mean smashing pumpkins were doing it right then in chicago yeah. <laughs> right i mean yeah we we didn't know right no you exactly. didn't know it yeah. But but it, it, I, I look at it, too, where, you know, realistically, like Virginia and the East Coast, like they had a head start, you know, just historically speaking, being around longer as a city and having the ability to, you know, uh, have, uh, like you said, a head start to, to knowing that this can be more in the water and then you would be able to, you know, kind of dip into it and understand it a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you, you um, strike. I mean, not like yeah. I've seen you i mean i saw renee uh, like i said once and then uh, i saw count me out i i saw you guys i mean you played the showcase theater here in southern california a couple oh, times an awesome show man or at least the one i'm thinking of yeah oh no i saw you guys uh, and that and for, yes that yeah oh, man i'll always remember that one yeah and then uh yeah. I, i'm fairly certain i saw you guys at the pch club out here in uh, uh yeah so uh, but I, you always struck me as a person, not like I, I knew you beyond just, you know, existing on stage or whatever, but you struck me as a person that, uh, you know, w- weren't like incredibly outgoing, but at the same time, like, you know, friendly to talk to or whatever, but not the guy that's like, you know, sucking all the air out of the room at a party or whatever. Um, <laughs> is that ac- an accurate description of you or am I completely off base? I think you're right. Um, uh, yeah, I can certainly be uh, a- pretty chatty you know uh i love to um, in, get into conversation and all that but maybe that is about right i could see my, especially during that era um probably a little i'm a little bit introverted but love people <laughs> right so yeah fair assessment i should say <laughs> I, and the reason i bring that up is because there is that notion of you know most vocalists you know regardless of the music that they're playing have to have that uh you know, whether it's confidence or, you know, ego, like something attached to it to be like, oh, I'm going to be this unless it's kind of the and frankly, I think most people in the DIY, you know, punk, hardcore adjacent scene are kind of reluctant, reluctant front man, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, like I'll do this because, you know, like, yeah, I like to sing and I obviously want to play in a band. But, you know, I'm not the person that's like, oh, man, I can't wait to be like, you know, Bono from U2 or whatever. Yeah, I can see what you mean. I mean, there certainly seem to be those people that like they get energy from that. Like that actually makes them. Uh, yeah, for me, the being a front man um, was more or just fronting the band. It was more just, man, I just I really want to do music. I, I want to sing. I, 
uh, I want to create it. But uh, yeah, never. I mean, I guess I didn't have much experience with it, too. I mean, we really came out of Count Me Out, got into Radiant Heartfelt, and I had to sort of step from behind the drum set into the guitar and then really quickly be like, okay, now I'm a front man with guys in a band that is, this is, we're not like in high school. These are guys who are, you know, have done other bands and, and maybe there's a little level of an expectation. Um, so that definitely felt at the time, like big shoes to fill. I was certainly nervous. I mean, I definitely was unsure of myself from every aspect, playing guitar, writing songs, be fronting the band. There was definitely always that level of like, wow, uh, am I any good? All those things. So, and I think that that, that comes through a lot of anyone really putting a uh, real emotion in their music or really trying to, you know, be genuine about it. Um, I think there's going to be that level of, uh, man, what are people going to think? Or I'm unsure of it. And maybe at a certain point you do get that gravitas where you think, you know, I'm a great songwriter. I'm in, I'm confident in myself. Uh, but I think there's always a level of that if you're really putting your heart on your sleeve, you know? Sure. So maybe yeah. you were picking up that too early on too, because I mean, looking back, I really did feel like, especially during the, the with the first EP, that um, yeah, I was I was anxious about the music and, and trying to find our sound, and uh, feeling like a lot of that weight was on me. That like you know, it was kind of the sound of the band was kind of you know that I could really make or break it, and it was uh, I was aware of that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's true because especially with you enter your you know second or third band you do have more baggage uh psychologically because like you said i mean you're not you know a, a dumb 18 year old like you know maybe you're a dumb 24 year old or whatever right, but like right. you, you still know it's like okay I, I i know that this is just some quote-unquote dumb hardcore band or whatever not saying they count me out to dumb hardcore band because they're not but <laughs> it's just right. that that no, that yeah but it's like that that weight that kind of goes on you where it's like oh wow like you know, I, I got to take this more seriously because, you know, there there are eyes on me, whatever that may be. Yeah. And I mean, there was certainly moments uh, where we'd be writing a certain song or doing something and you get that really that boost of confidence, that awesome satisfaction. when You create something you like. Right. That you think, oh, man, that that's the sound. That's us. That's me. That's my, you know, all of that. Um, and you kind of live for that moment. And that kind of pushes you along as you go out. And sort of then, yeah, play a show and then kind of have to put yourself out there and get used to that feeling. And I mean, and over the years, it, it did, it got way easier and you kind of find your voice. But certainly with Renee, it was, I mean, those, those first, the first, the demo and then the first EP, I was really adjusting to that. And then, I mean, really, by the, I think when we came out to California, we had only just recorded the album. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it was really at that. I mean, honestly, I feel like after that tour, even though we not very long after broke up, uh, we kind of found our footing and felt more confident and like had a set and really understood what we were doing. I mean, all those kind of lame descriptors sometimes we do right as musicians around what we're doing, but it just felt more natural after that. Um, mm -hmm. To get back to what you were saying originally, just sort of saying you seemed introverted or maybe a little nervous. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and so I, I understand that, like you said, you, you got into, you know, independent music, you know, via your older brother and skating. And, you know, that was all kind of in the water as you started to really experience the Richmond scene and all of the bands that were, you know, popping at that time, you know, Vale and obviously everything that came before that from Four Walls Falling, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, 
what was the kind of the, you know, the first like band or two that really kind of grabbed you as you started to, you know, identify with a more localized scene as it were? Um, was it, you know, kind of, I mean, Avail's a big one, I can imagine. Um, was there anything else that kind of stood out? Well, I'll bring it. No, it was definitely Inquisition. I don't yes. know if you, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Inquisition. Nice. So that was the first show I went to was Inquisition. Gosh, uh, I, I, it wasn't with fun size. It might've been, there were some other local version like bands that did it. But when we got to Richmond, there was, uh, my brother had a couple of friends, one in particular, Brooke Cribs, uh, um, that basically fast forward, like, Hey, this is where shows are. Um, here's some really cool local bands that are awesome. And sort of, you know, cause at the time it was a, yeah, the, the tape or the album, like to hear it. Right. So sometimes if you didn't have, know the right person, you might not be exposed to it, but luckily enough, I remember we went skating one night, got to go to a show that night. We all packed in my brother's car, went down, there was Inquisition. And I think just right there, that was seeing that. It was like, that energy is so incredible. It seems so accessible. These are guys are just up on the stage. Like, I could do that. We could do that. And Brooke wanted to start a band. So she got a drum set. They bought it off uh, Craigslist or what, something like that. I think the trading post. We drove out, got the drum set, and it was in our basement. So that was the beginning. We got a drum set. My brother got a bass guitar. Um, and it was shortly after going to that show. And then, you know, for the next four years, we sort of developed uh, doing a bunch of different bands and had bigger and bigger shows in the basement. Um, and I was in this pop punk band called uh, The Nuns. And that led to meeting uh, Charlie and getting him to count me out. But I guess I'm fast forwarding to what you were saying. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, because, yeah, I, I, I think the reason that I asked that that localized question is because I find it so informative when you do feel like, yes, getting into, you know, minor threat, youth of today, gorilla biscuits, whatever, all of the sort of, you know, starter kit bands are always yeah, yeah, really, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's insightful. And it's awesome in there for everybody. Yeah. You got to have that stuff. Band merch. You know what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about rockabilia.com. Use this code as always PC 100 words gets you 15% off your order. So easy to dive into their website and find exactly what it is you're looking for, buy some gifts for friends, family, whatever it is you are looking to accomplish, they will be able to give it to you. It's all officially licensed stuff, no horrible bootleg stuff where you're going to be washing it once and then all of a sudden all of your screen printing is gone. Rockabilia is the real deal. And, and trust me in saying this, it is a independently run business. You are supporting the bands you are supporting this this small run business that's been in that's been doing this for 20 plus years they're the real deal and i love working with them and spreading the gospel that is rockabilia.com again pc 100 words use that code 15% off that's essentially me if you're spending over $100 that's me giving you a uh, you know a t-shirt essentially so anyways rockabilia.com have fun there but yeah like to your point it's that 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 touchability of something that's like local when it's like, wait a minute, like I could see, you know, like I could see yeah. this dude working at the local vegan co-op or whatever. Like he's there. Like I, I just saw him play last night and he's right there. It's amazing. Yeah. There's something about that. Right. And it, all of a sudden it, it, it becomes a door that you can walk through where before it's like, Oh, this, you know, it comes to your stereo or if you're not, yeah, it's hard if you don't have like a local live music scene to yes, maybe picture yourself doing it or kind of get the, that that live music experience and man it looking back it was lucky i was really lucky to be there when we were to see the bands we did and to get to experience all that and sort of just by kind of a little bit of luck 
and being curious, I guess. But um, yeah, Richmond had a really cool scene in that little early 90s. It was small enough. It was pretty supportive. Any band really could kind of get a show. And, and sometimes a good show. This guy, Jerry, who ran Twisters, um, booked insane bands. He booked uh, the Deftones. Right. They came. We saw that. I mean, it was insane. Like, so everywhere from that to the crappy local Tuesday night show where your band's playing the first, you know, the opening slot, but whoever it is, it's fine. Come on in and do it. Um, just awesome. And I mean, you growing up in LA, it's not like that, right? I mean, you can't, there's not a local scene that's that easy to step into. Is there? It, uh, I or mean, I'm about, there, I should say? I'm about an hour South. So like I, like in yeah. the orange County area. So yes, right. there was, but still okay, to your point, yeah. orange County. Yeah. But still, yeah. But you had to, I mean, to your point, you had to do the whole like local band showcase theater night, you know, like you had to do those things. But just the fact that a person would answer the phone and be like, oh, yes, like your terrible hardcore band can play like, you know, that's right. And and, like, that's like, what? Oh, okay, cool. Like, yeah, you got to sell 25 tickets. It's like, okay, whatever. Like, (laughs) that's fine. I'll try. (laughs) But yeah, I, I completely understand. Um and I find it interesting, this is kind of jumping around here, but, you know, you, uh, with, with the fact that, you know, you were busy with Count Me Out in regards to, like, touring and, you know, being as active as you guys were as a band, uh, but, you know, clearly there was the, there was no notion or roadmap of, like, turning bands into, you know, quote-unquote careers. And so you always struck me as a person that you navigated the, you know, real-life implications of what you were doing as far as, like, school and you know like yeah, building your yeah. life up and so i i find it interesting because you know you obviously did that for renee hartfelt as well um was that just kind of like always the sort of practical nature of what you were doing or was that just kind of you know a function of like well i know i can't make a living off of music so of course i'm gonna like pursue my real life stuff or whatever yeah i, I mean looking back i'd love to pretend like i yeah there was a big grandmaster plan i but certainly i in high school, I was not as focused. I, I certainly want made good grades, kind of A's and B's, but sort of phoned it in a little bit. Um, I was more caught up with playing music and sort of the excitement of this new thing, new passion, right? Um, but I started at VCU, and everybody that counted me out was at VCU um, doing art degrees. Um, sort of in that, that, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I'd always been interested in biology. Um, but again, never a particularly strong student, never really kind of, you know, my guidance counselor was like you why are you going to college why don't you do a trade school so there wasn't like a real strong push other than for my mom and dad to do college my brother kind of didn't do college he went off and joined the air force um so senior year i was like sort of count me out had done a u.s tour i was really excited about that i didn't want to go out you know out of state or something for college but i also felt the draw like i should go to college i know yeah to your point like I want to have, there's other aspirations I have in my life than just music, but right now, man, all I can think about is music, you know? Um, So I was caught up with that and I found a happy medium was I took a scholarship at VCU um, and started there. And uh, as soon as, for some reason, I just got into VCU and decided I was just going to do as as well as I could. Um, So that first semester, um, I really worked hard, made straight A's. And then it just sort of dawned on me while counting I was going on that okay, maybe I can do the school thing and maybe I should pursue medicine. Um, I was really interested in uh, doing that. Um, and it was kind of just on the back burner, but I wanted to have that door open. So I really, and as soon as I kind of proved myself that I could do it, um, then I was like, all right, now I've got to do it. So I was in the library all the time, super focused. 
um, and was sort of pre-med. And about that time, I had my jaw broken. Um, so I had a problem with my the way my upper and lower jaw fit together. So I they broke my jaw at the dental school. Uh, oh. like an eight-hour surgery. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. What? what uh, like, if you didn't get it fixed, what would have happened? Would it just, uh, like, have worn on your teeth in a really weird yeah, way? Yeah, it was teeth wear. Uh, essentially, my bite put my all the sort of tips of your teeth, the cuss tips, uh, end to end. And they were worried at the time and sort of the understanding. And, and it's still a procedure that's done and, and very worthwhile. Um, but long short of it is that the orthodontist was like, listen, we can't get your teeth in the proper position. It's not going to be stable. Um, you should have this jaw where we, uh, surgery where we'll just move the jaw so the teeth can fit together properly. And then you'll have a stable bite and smile and all that. And I wow. was what, 18 at this point. I'd worn <laughs> braces through all of high school. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's brutal. Was, yeah, man. So, um, I was ready to be done with it and I was fine to do it. I was a little bit just again, like, okay, this is the end point. I'll go through with it. It did. Even at the time, I was a little like, this is crazy. And the famous story is now, so now I'm a freshman in college. We're all together at Count Me Out. And Jason comes over and he has a buddy that's had this, the jaw surgery done. And the guy was like, don't do it, man. Do not do it. And mind you, this, the surgery was like two weeks away. So I'm right. feeling all that pressure, right? Of like, it's already a sign, you know? And he's like looking me in the eye, like, do not do it, man. It is a, the biggest mistake of my life. I should never have done it. So I was all wigged out and long short, still went through with it. But in doing so, met because uh, I was pre-medical, pre-med. I really wanted to be an ER doctor. Um, uh, met a bunch of dental students. Met the oral surgery uh, students and residents, and like, kind of clicked right there. That was a cool. Despite having to go through that surgery, it really opened my eyes to what you know what dentistry was and that that possibility. So yeah, that was sort of the that I wanted to do that too. And uh, then just all of a sudden, I transferred to UVA. So that brought me. Coming, I was still together. All of a sudden, now I'm at UVA. I'm uh, a junior. I have no friends. I'm, uh, there was some complication getting into the college in terms of uh, as a transfer student to um, get into the dorms. And essentially, they oversell the dorm. So I don't know what's going on. Like, I, you know, I, I have a couple of friends at UVA, but I've really been caught up with counting me out and just my life in Richmond. And now, bam, you know, school starting. And I probably dragged my feet a little bit on uh getting set up. But nonetheless, I'm about to go to school and the school saying, Hey, crash at a friend's house. Cause you don't have anywhere to stay in a dorm right now. And <laughs> I didn't really have any friends. And they're like, yeah, don't worry. And usually in about like two to four, sometimes six weeks, uh, it'll open up and you'll have somewhere to stay. Don't worry. And I was like, well, I, I really don't, I, I didn't have anywhere to go. So long short of it is that I went and rented like this little efficiency bedroom where you share a living room and a kitchen with oh, four sure. people. Yeah. Um, and ended up staying there. But now I'm kind of sequestered. I'm just in the library, hell-bent on making good grades, um, traveling on the weekends back to play with Count Me Out. So that's when I really started picking up the guitar and and working on Rennie Hartfeld. That's, uh, yeah, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, well, I, in regards to just the, the idea of balancing out this, you know, the, the real life things that you were pursuing, you know, becoming a tooth man. Um, not like anybody right. has ever said that, <laughs> but, uh, but just that, that idea of like, okay, this is what I'm pursuing. But then, you know, clearly, you know, punk and hardcore is so important to me. And like, you know, of course I'm not going to quit count me out like that. You know, that's not, <laughs> that's, that's not what we're doing here. No um, way. and so that's just, I think that really speaks to the idea of what most people 
go through when they are, you know, playing in bands, because, you know, clearly, even though if there is more of a path now for a younger hardcore band to be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we can kind of give it a go and, you know, tour whatever, 250 days out of the year. And, you know, I can make a living working at a bagel shop or whatever. But like, you know, that's the, most most people don't have that uh, path or that idea. Yeah, and that lifestyle is not necessary for everyone, but it's also a great and fun experience for a certain period of someone's life or your life, you know, all day long, especially when you're really hungry for it. And if it's uh, it, the trade off is so worth it, especially because you're having such, you know, usually awesome experiences kind of, again, creating music, right, touring. Yeah, and then you're coming home and working at a bagel shop and, and we've all done something like that to to support the music. Right. Um, but man, it's I don't know. It wasn't for me. Right. <laughs> and, and how did your uh, parents kind of react to you, you know, starting to bring home all of this, this, you know, weird music? I mean, obviously younger, you know, when you were, you know, skating and stuff like that. Was there any kind of friction in the house as far as like the stuff that you were getting into and the stuff you were bringing home? You know, my uh, in the early nights, my brother tried to bring my dad to see a show at Twister's. And, uh, he actually, I mean, he kind of resisted and resisted sort of knowing what the sound was. So he was never into it and there was, you know, but he was supportive enough. He just not very interested in what we were doing with it. Um, uh, whereas my mom again, I mean, I, dude, I can't believe she let me bang on that drum set. I mean, just having kids now to imagine to come home from work cause she worked. Um, and I would come home sort of latch key and then she'd get home at six and I'd been playing drums for two and a half hours and just wailing and she wouldn't say a thing. She let me play and then. So, yeah, she was always very supportive in that way. But, you know, they had the same kind of thing, though, of like, hey, if you're you're doing well in school, kind of hands off was sort right. of how and I figured that out early enough. So, <laughs> that's incredibly supportive for sure. And that's incredibly important. Like I, I always really laughed at my any of my friends that had this really epic struggle with their parents. It's like, dude, just like just do enough to get them off of your back and then you can go to shows in the weekend. Like what's, why are you making such a big, you know, like, why are you, yeah. It, yeah. it just, it didn't, you know, it, it just never clicked with me. And I, I felt that when people like yourself had that figured out with your parents where it's like, yes, like they'll trust you as long as you're not getting arrested and you're getting tolerable enough grades. Like you'll be okay. You'll be left alone. Yeah. And I think also like my mom knowing that I was straight edge uh, and all that helped too. And also, yes. I guess, I think to some extent, being a boy instead of a girl, right? Uh, certainly, some uh, differences exist for parents. I think there in terms of how strict they are. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I had a pretty long leash, as, as it says. I mean, as they say, like, it, and that helped again to get all those experiences. Because otherwise, I mean, come on, I would, junior in high school, we went on a U.S. tour. Right. <laughs> right. It's like I mean, very... not most families. <laughs> no, for sure. Uh, and kind of on that tip, did you? enjoy the touring experience um you know i know that the sort of you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed you know young person experience of going on tour is of course exciting because you're yeah. seeing new cities and all that sort of stuff was there any um i guess reservations as you started to kind of you know see what the the quote-unquote road was really like or was it all just an adventure it was i mean the adventure overline i mean and certainly looking back it's real rosy right i mean I, when i think about it, i'm like oh my god those were you know some of the coolest you know yeah, the adventure of it was just, just incredible. Looking at my journals that I kept, I could tell I was struggling a lot with just downtime. I did not like the fact that, you know, yeah, you'd, 
uh, so of course the music bonding with your friends, especially getting to be in a band with your like closest friends is just awesome. Um, and I know that's not everybody's experience. Um, so overall everybody got along well. So that part of it was great, but it also would kill me that we'd, you know, waste six hours. You have no money. You don't can't really go anywhere. And you just, you know, that's cool again at first, but I was starting, I think with Renee Hartfelt to notice that part of the road and realizing too, like, wow, it's going to be maybe a really long slow, like we're gonna have to do a lot of this where it's going to be day after day of this sort of six hours of downtime, seven hours, big, long drive, wait around, you know, play a show. Maybe you're not getting again, the positive kind of affirmation from the shows you're playing. So you just kind of have to grit and bear it. Um, so yeah, I was, I struggled with that a little bit. And I think that probably in retrospect, it wasn't for me, but at the time I, I wanted it so bad. I was like, this is, you know, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. Both sides of it. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. I mean, there's definitely, that's something that you have a real difficult time explaining and articulating to a person who hasn't experienced it where it's like, yeah, it's the highest highs you can experience of playing, you know, in front of 400 people, you know, 3000 miles away from home. And then yeah. the lowest lows of being like, oh yes, we're playing in front of you know, negative seven people in Montreal and it's freezing and I would literally just want a cup of coffee, but I can't because I have to load in or whatever, like all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, if you could remove even that, if you could say, Hey, you're going to be with some, you know, friends or at least like-minded people going out and playing these shows, um, to four people that give a crap, that's, that's awesome. But then you also add in exactly that sort of opportunity cost of, okay, you're doing this with your winter break or you're doing this instead of doing this that's where I think a lot of the pressures come in on bands. And I mean, certainly Renee had some of that too, of like sort of everybody saying, Hey, I'm focusing on Renee instead of this other, maybe another option or another Avenue in my life. Um, at that kind of critical mid twenties where people are sort of trying to figure out that next chapter. Um, so it kind of put a lot of extrinsic pressure on the band or on, on the show or on the tour that it's gotta be awesome, or at least it's gotta be halfway decent. Or it's gotta be some, glimmer of hope in there that says let's let's keep doing this let's you know yeah and that that actually dovetails perfectly into the next question i was going to ask in regards to the kind of the business implications because you know even though count me out you know had uh quote unquote limited success it's like you guys still did a lot for what you did and you know working with indecision records and you know selling merch like the just the idea of like when you get paid, you know, $200 for a show and you're just like, what? Like, this is insane. Like, you know, the, the business stuff starts to kind of, you know, bleed into it. And like you said, with Renee Hartfelt, that definitely added another layer of pressure. Did you, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, like the, the business of music or was that something that was just kind of a necessary evil for you to, you know, pursue the, the fun things that you were doing? I think if we were having more success with it, I probably would have liked it. I mean, uh, <laughs> sure. I, <laughs> but it, I think it, it, it was all, often a source of stress for us or a sort of disappointment. Um, so there was some aspect of kind of wanting to have that off our plate. Like we really wanted to get a booking agent and this kid, Eric, who was just awesome. And I think went in, went on to work in much bigger uh, venues and artists, but uh, it was kind of cutting his teeth, booking smaller bands. And we were one of them. He's from Wilkes Bar. And liked us, was just a cool dude, always looked out and booked our shows. And I was so relieved when he started doing that because at, from I was doing like email and telephone printout MapQuest kind of little three-day tour things um, and struggling with it. And I don't, I don't remember really enjoying it. Um, we did our own t-shirts and like most bands, but I, 
I remember sort of getting into that, but again, always with a little bit of that insecurity of like, oh, how can we buy a hundred shirts? We'll never sell a hundred shirts. Right. You know? <laughs> and then we would, which was cool, but still, um, yeah. So I was probably our own worst enemy and probably the wrong person to, you know, uh, sure. running the business aspect. We were never, <laughs> count me. I was never good too. Not to, uh, we, I felt like that was always an Achilles heel, um, where some, some bands have that sort of, I hate to say like a merchandising or like a, they just have the knack for it to create whatever it is that, that people will want and kind of who are into the band that just get psyched on it. Mm-hmm. I felt like sometimes we miss the boat with that, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think that there, no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think that there is, you know, there's an inherent, um, you know, weight that falls on certain members of a band based on either, you know, them just being like, oh, you're the singer. So of course you got to book the shows or whatever. Like there's yeah. just this weird default that happens. And then sometimes it's like, well, maybe that person isn't good at the thing and like, they don't even want to be doing it, but then it just kind of falls into that pattern. And it's not, you know, you're a child. You can't articulate that. <laughs> you're not like, Hey, maybe I'm not the best person to, you know, put up, $700 for, you know, this, this, uh, you know, van rental or whatever. Like, I don't even want right. to think about this, but like, I guess <laughs> I'll do it. So yeah, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And, and like you said, wanting to, um, you know, abdicate that responsibility in a good way to be able to, you know, focus on the things that you felt like were a little bit, uh, you know, easier for you to grasp. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, looking too with Renee, I mean, Aaron, uh, and, Colin, the drummer, and they were both very capable and always utilizing like, hey, we know somebody this. So kind of thrown in the pot. But to your point, a lot of that I did feel like fell back on my shoulders and kind of a little bit like, hey, man, you're the singer. That's kind of, you know, right. You'd, you're right. And I, I understood that. Uh, but I was, yeah, not very good at it. Um, didn't have a lot of connections. Didn't maybe have all the, the charisma and the sort of I always think of like uh, Kurt Powers from Time Flies. Sure. Time Flies. Oh yeah, love them. for sure. One of yep. my favorites of all time. And Kurt was always this magnanimous, like dude. Yeah, you used to talk about like life of the party, the guy everyone's paying attention to in the circle, type of guy, and always made things happen. It was always just, and I always impressed with that. And the front man. So I kind of looking at him, kind of felt like, oh yeah, that's kind of the archetype of somebody who like makes it happen for their band. Um, and maybe tried to follow what he was doing, or at least that he made the framework for me. And I'm just not that guy. So right. Well, yeah. and it, it's funny, too, because like no shade against time flies, but like they're, um, you know, realist, like they're a pretty tried and true traditional hardcore band, like mm-hmm. good, good at what they do, but they definitely weren't, you know, breaking any molds per se. And so their success probably was predicated on his ability to be able to, you know, be that guy that's like, oh, yeah, of course, dude, of course, we'll put out a time flies record or of course we'll do this. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you know. Whereas like sometimes on the flip side, if there's a person that doesn't have that, their band may not get that because they're not, you know, uh, front and center to this person's, you know, uh, business decision or whatever. So, yeah, there's a you know, there's definitely a flip side to both of those things of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The and so as you were kind of, you know doing all of this kind of in tandem with one another, you know, pursuing your school career and, you know, figuring out what you're doing on that side and then putting together Renee Heartfelt and, you know, starting to play out and, you know, having ambitions for that. Um, did you, I, I guess, did you ever feel like you were, you know, burning the candle at both ends where you're just like, well, I'm doing both of these things very, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, no, uh, you know, not 
putting you in a corner, but like not doing either of these things very well. Like, <laughs> am I, yeah. you know, just because I'm not focused on one thing. Um, I mean, of course you didn't have the perspective that you might now to be like, Oh yeah, like clearly I was doing that. But did you ever kind of feel like that as you were sort of, you know, pushing things along or was that just kind of like not even part of your thought process because you were just trying to make both things successful? I mean, I was, yeah, I was down to do the, like, I n- never stop working on the two projects sort of thing. I, I was super, you know, I remember I was living in my mom's attic after getting out of, I graduated from school, came back and was in her attic because I had my little studio in there, um, studying for the DAT, which is the entrance exam and, um, kind of fiercely going at both things. Like I got to make this record, I, or at least I got to start this band and I've got to, make a really good score on this test, um, to sort of set the next two years in motion as I, you know, I'm going to do my application, blah, blah, blah. Um, so at the time I really liked it and it was later though, or at least I felt like I could do it, I think, but it, it took until I want to say after the LP that I realized that that was not something I was going to be able to do. Right. That I was either going to have to put all my attention into trying to do rain and heartfelt. And at that point, somewhat humbled for sure. I mean, I was already humbled starting the thing, man, but after it and sort of having it kind of fall apart and, and never really get traction it sort of reinforced maybe some of my insecurities about my music our music um mm-hmm. and then also feeling like well man for it to really be good we'd have to like we need to write like five records we got to play so many show more shows to nobody so that we can get good um and i and that's sort of why i think we, we kind of called it when i started school because it wasn't like you know the, a blowout argument or some issue like that it was sort of just like man i uh, as I started school, it's like, we just can't do this. You know, we can't do both. So, right. Yeah. This is not, uh, not even that this is not practical in like the, you know, adult sense of the word, but just, this is not, uh, you know, bringing me the joy and happiness that either of these thing, either of these corners of my life should bring me. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I've, I, it, it's weird. I, I hate to say that, that it was not the, for, Looking back again, it's all, I, I really am uh, such an awesome experience in the moment. I think I wanted it so bad, felt like we had failed. And all of a sudden it was giving me a lot of negative feedback when I thought about Renee, how it felt or what was going on with it. And I sort of had this new chapter with school opening and I was like, let me just, I'm going through this door. Um, you know, I w- it wasn't meant to be. Right. So there was some closure there in a way. Um, yeah. Well, and I think too, realistically where, you know, because especially, you you know, with the heartfelt memorial and like all, all of the, you know, iterations that the band kind of right, took, yeah. took, took under, I think, I mean, realistically, uh, no one should remember this band like yeah, in all, is, and, and, right. Which is, which is so neat. I mean, not only for me because I enjoyed the music personally, but I'm sure for you where it's just like, this is stupid that I'm like doing a podcast about this band, <laughs> like which realistically, you know, put out a decent amount of music, but we did not do very much. And no. I think that that probably speaks to the, um, you know, the strength of the music and like how you were putting yourself out there in like the least, um, I, I guess, thought through way possible. Like you were putting thought into the music, but you weren't like, oh, okay, here, like you said, this is some part of, you know, some master plan or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, to, your, to your point, it has been, it's just been super surprising because it felt like it was dead, dead, especially because we, you know, the record wasn't going to get re-released. I didn't know how to get it even on into 
to really digital streaming, although it was available. It just seemed like, um, so I've just been so surprised by it. Um, and in a way though, it's, it's far enough or yeah, it's kind of, I don't want to say in the rear view mirror, but it is long enough that it almost feels like this other entity separate from me a little bit. Um, I have to sure. sort of listen to the songs again or something to sort of be like, Oh yeah, God, I mean, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. You have, you have enough um, distance between it to actually have perspective on the thing. And, you know, ultimately, you know, this is going to sound weird, but you probably appreciate it more than what you did when you were actually like getting up there and playing the songs, like in certain respects. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we were, I, there was it, to some extent when we were even recording the record or after a show, it was just so hard to see through what you were trying, you know, what you could do better, what you want to be better, what, you know, how it's sounding not the way you want it to sound instead of just, you know, yeah, again, uh, just appreciating the band for what it was. And now it's probably easier to do so. And especially with people kind of reaching out and saying, Hey, you know, the band meant something that, yeah, it's been definitely been cool. Right. Um, exactly. Cause it got yeah. dark towards the end there. <laughs> totally. Well, yeah. And there, there's two last things I want to hit on where the, you know, cause I, I know that it was extremely messy with textbook music and, you know, just in regards to, cause there was that era of, labels that you know had this attachment to like major label ideas or major label funding like uh, like i mean i distinctly remember you know brian mctiernan's label and the band that he put out you know moments of grace which uh mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. i don't know if you're familiar with that band at all but like it, it was such a you know it, it's such a weird thing when you have all of this kind of combining together where it's like you have these people who have good ideas and maybe their heart's in the right place but then, you know, it gets re- and, and not comparing what Brian did with, with his label yeah. versus what you guys experienced. But like there was this weird, um, you know, sort of a side attachment to like the music industry of these people who were just trying to make something happen. But that ended up like being really detrimental to a band's life cycle. That whole kind of idea had come in. I mean, it's, it's funny too coming out of like DIY music and um I, again, we really just wanted to play. I, I really just wanted to be on Revelation Records. I mean, that was like the the wildest fantasy goal of Renee Harfo when we started with that we would play, we would be on Rev. Um, so I, I still had that kind of DIY mindset, but all of a sudden, I walked into this or walked the band into this silly contract, and some of these things were, yeah, maybe they were using some techniques that were very reminiscent of like, you know, who's the guy that did the in sync and. <laughs> Backstreet oh yeah, Boys. Per- Perlman, uh, Ron Perlman. Perlman, yeah, it's sort of maybe a little more like masterminding something. But and again, textbook wasn't doing that. But I'm glad you you remember that there was a weird little era there where I feel like the major labels were dipping their toe in of like, hey, what's this about? Let's have some producers that we know and talk about. Or um, and so there was a real sense that maybe one of these bands, who knows which one it would be, yeah, would, would get picked up and converted. So I felt like labels were offering that sort of contract at the at the time, right? Sort of a, something to either, yeah, we're going to become a bigger uh, major label or we're going to sell to a major label or we're going to get what it was upstream. Up by a major, up, yeah. yeah, there was the, the upstream deals where it's like, I mean, so, so, many, so much of that stuff was also happening with like, you know, the big hardcore labels like Trust Kill and Ferret and like even you know, like a a label like the militia group, like there was all, there was all of this like idea that, okay, we'll put out a record on a small label to build credibility, give the band a product to tour with or whatever. And then maybe on the full length, we'll, 
you know, put it out on Island or whatever. But yeah, like, yeah. But the, the, it, I could definitely see where it's like, OK, well, you know, textbook can exist for Renee Hartfeld because they need to get their feet wet. But like, you know, they're not ready for the, you know, the, the prime time yet <laughs> or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I honestly feel like there was some some discussions in that way. But again, we just wanted to be in a band so bad we didn't care. It was anyone who was willing to help us record music, et cetera. I was down to talk to and and probably a little bit to uh, gave people the benefit of the doubt, maybe too much. Um, because I do feel like had we not maybe gotten in that, ourselves in that situation, things would have been a little different. But again, we wouldn't record the record. So right, it exactly. would sound the way it does, right? Oh, dude, for sure. I mean, Matt, Matt, Matt's right. Matt, <laughs> right. It's like, well, if, if we never would have got this, then we probably never would have recorded with Matt Squire and like, you know, yeah, a record could have sounded differently recording with somebody else, but like, you know, that, that set in motion, all the chain of events that, you know, led led you to where you are now. I mean, had we not, I really wonder because Matt was really taking off, like with the EP, he was still getting started. Um, he was already good, but he was, you know, he was getting bigger and he was playing, he did a bunch of really cool metal stuff. But then with the LP is when I really noticed like, wow, it's taken off. And I think it, it, I, had we tried to get with him six months later, I don't know if he'd have been available. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He was, so he was taking, taking off in the perfect timing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Taking off in the panic rocket ship. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, the, the, you know, now that, I mean, you know, you were able to, you know, progress and obviously, you know, get your, uh, you know, your doctorate and you are a, uh, you know, a dentist now and having, you know, still being connected to music. Cause I mean, I, from what I can tell, you obviously still love, you know, all of the things that you have, you know, kind of grown up with what, you know, do you find yourself kind of, uh, you know, attaching these DIY principles and stuff like that, that you have kind of learned to, you know, for lack of a better term, like your real life, whether it's, you know, your parenting and like, you know, do you find that kind of like permeating through in a weird way? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You really can't. I mean, um, it was totally my formative experience was, you know, the small business of running a hardcore, but also the relationships, the sort of ethos. I think a lot of the value systems that, that most punk, hardcore, alternative bands espouse, especially that era, that's that's yeah that's still me and i mean it still affects the way i practice dentistry the way i run my business the dental, i mean my dental practice definitely with the kids and parenting um yeah i wouldn't change a thing we're so lucky to have gotten to experience that and when it was happening i was like right you're seizing the moment i mean i think that's part of what hardcore and that music is all about um but even then it, it you don't realize how good it was or how awesome it was maybe until it's and it's behind you and you have sure. perspective well, and you and you don't, you can't. You're literally learning like life skills, but you, of course, would not describe it as such. It's not like you're like, yeah. hey, you know what? Like me looking at an Excel sheet for, you know, how many pieces of merch we sold on one night. Like, oh, that's like accounting. Like, what? That is? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, man. I mean, and and seeing it right there, it's not in theory, it's not a textbook, but yeah, buying the shirts or trying to figure out the tour and budget your, or whatever those things. Oh man, so many lessons you could learn from that. Working with other people, understanding sure. personality types. Right. Uh, you know. Oh my God. And yeah. We fought, We definitely fucked it all up too while we were doing it. So it was great, but um. I don't know if that was what you were trying to, to get at, but I, I do think it, it, it did. I mean, it seems like it was for you. In fact, most hardcore kids I meet 
have done such interesting things with their lives. I mean, I would say it's, you know, more often than not, right? They're off usually ambitious, just trying to do something, it, whether it be travel or whatever, they're ambitious with having life experiences, I guess, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the do-it-yourself nature, like I, I, and I'm sure you experience this all the time with the way that you know you do business and the way that you probably uh, treat your patients is just that idea that like you you know a lot of the times we don't ask permission like we just do it because we know how to do it it's not like oh that's not really my job so i'm not going to do that it's just like oh no if i can help i will yeah you know and also right the maybe also breaking down some of that barrier that even like when i was a kid and i'd see the dentist or the doctor's office and sort of I don't know when I, I, the idea that, uh, the accessibility and that, you know, we're all meeting on the same level and, um, that's really brought up a, a wonderful kind of gratitude to my life, uh, sure. that I'm uh, definitely really appreciative of. I, I never thought about it like that, but I mean, the way that you put that, it, it's very true because like most people, you know, like when you visit the doctor or the dentist, like, you know, you are viewing this person through the lens of their profession and like when you, you know, a teacher is the same thing. But when you view this yeah. person as a real person where it's just like, wait, Dr. Pete is like a real human. Like, you know, like, yes, of course, he's got a family or whatever. But like when you are actually, like you said, meeting people on that level where it's like, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm here to help you because I know a little bit more about your mouth than you do. But, you know, like I'm still just a human. I'm still just a dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I certainly try to meet people on the, on that level too, because I do feel like you, uh, it's important um, in any in any interaction you're having, whether you with your dentist or your, you know, your real estate agent or your kids, or has to be some elements of that. Of course, with kids, you know, you can't be too friendly. <laughs> right, whole other subject. But uh, you know, right, you know, each other, man. Sure. Um, the, the last thing I'll ask you is the, um, like you said, with kind of this, you know, att- attention boomeranging back around to you, I mean, not only with the reissue, but I'm, I'm sure over the course of, you know, the past, whatever, five or 10 years, people randomly reaching out on, you know, a variety of social media platforms being like, oh, you know, Renee Hartfelt is, you know, meaningful to me or count me out. It's meaningful to me. Um, what's been kind of you know, a, a really random interaction that you have had. It doesn't even have to be with like, you know, a person of note, but just being like, Hey, this, you know, this musical thing that you did brought value to me. Um, what, what were some of the, I guess, surprising responses that you received or have received? Um, I guess it, it's that a lot of people who didn't see the band, uh, or, you know, had only heard the band that, uh, still connected to it i guess i always assume the only people that are ever going to connect with Randy Hartfelt after we broke up were people that kind of either yeah saw us or were there during the era otherwise you know the sound wouldn't uh make sense or something like that at least that was kind of my how i thought it would be uh and i, I want to say yeah like five or so years ago maybe I, I started seeing um somebody posted something on youtube or somebody reached out to me through facebook um but it was all sort of just uh, again, like, hey, is Renee Hartfelt going to get back together or those kind of questions? Um, and then more recently, it, it's been uh, people posting stuff on Instagram. Um, and I, I'm sure you might have seen some of them just when the, with the record as it people getting the record. And that's been really cool to see uh, just people generally stoked on the album. I, I don't know if I've ever had anybody like specifically, uh, you know, something other than, hey, I really 
uh, appreciate the music you guys were doing. It was it's cool to hear some even from people in Europe. Um, but uh, man, I, I'm trying to think something off the you caught me on the spot here. Uh, no, I know it's it's okay. But I I think I mean that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, where realistically the band you know was sh- short lived. You know, played a handful of shows and you know did what you guys could. But, you know, with the attention span of most people and music and how disposable it is, um, you know, the fact that you have created a longer lasting legacy than most other bands that have maybe put out twice as much material, you know, that says something. I mean, that, it, and it's awesome. I'm humbled by it. I can't believe it because, again, to your point, I mean, it, it wasn't really readily available. We really were hardly around. It's it's just one of those things where I was I'm just kind of surprised people found it or that, uh, you know, it has carried on. Yeah, because, again, I even at the time when Renee was starting, it felt like there were so many bands and it was so hard to kind of even make a name for yourself or break above all that. And now more so, right? I mean, so the fact that there's some people that still care enough about the band and a little bit of music that we made has just been just awesome. So, yeah. um, Well, now, now now you can uh, do, do your, uh, do your children, have your children listen to the music that you have played and do they find it lame? (laughs) You know, I think the first time they heard it, um, they did. And now Isabel is 16. Um, yeah, she likes some of it. I think she's getting a little bit more in touch with that. You know, I, maybe a little bit of that emotion or that, that kind of side of music where I'm seeing some of the stuff she's listening to. I'm like, oh, okay, you're getting a little deeper than just pop music. Right. Um, so <laughs> I love that. Not that. But yeah, so actually, surprisingly, no, they've been, they've been pretty gentle about it. They have, but uh Kind of just like, oh yeah, that's your thing, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I try to get them to play some music, but they they've been reluctant. But I never know, man. You never know. Sometimes one day they might be like, I'm ready. So that'll be right. cool. Um, <laughs> well, and I, and, I, and I think no matter what, I mean, realistically, anything that your parents are into or do, for the most part, you know, is pushed against. Like just like instinctually, like part of your DNA is like, oh, that stuff's not cool. And then you know, it isn't until many years later where you're like, you know what? Fleetwood Mac is pretty cool <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, it's so true, man. A natural way of things, I guess. You always, so, maybe we thought we were going to be able to at least skirt around it a little bit, but it's held yeah. true in my house. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it, you know, I mean, if you're, if your you know, daughter a couple years ago, you know, was like, oh yeah, I, I'm straight edge and I'm super an American nightmare. You're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking right. about? Like, this is weird. I don't, I wasn't um, expecting this. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, Pete, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. I really, really appreciate you doing this. And likewise, again, I appreciate you reaching out to me. It's a honor to be on your podcast. It's super cool what you're doing. And um, thank you. Oh, boy, that was quite a fun chat, right? Pete was um, just great. It's funny because I I lose adjectives. when I'm describing people because I just, I'm like, man, they were great. That was so much fun. And I feel like a a broken record every week, but, uh, I don't know, maybe that just speaks to the fact that this independent music scene is like nice and cool. I don't know. That's just me, but we have another great episode next week with Chase Mason from gate creeper, who, if you are living under a rock and you're not paying attention to the independent metal scene, um, just, Come out of there, okay? Because they just recently signed with Nuclear Blast, dropped a surprise new LP, 18 minutes long. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite thing that they have ever done. And so I had to have Chase on, so that's what we're doing next week. So until then, please be safe, everybody.